From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Michael, why do you think some places are more successful than others? I mean, economically. You know, look, whenever you're talking about success, it's usually a number of different factors. So it's probably a combination of things. There are probably places in the world where it's the result of natural resources being there or industry. You know, I live in San Francisco, you know, near Silicon Valley. This place is proud of the fact that it has world-class universities. It brings in people with skills from all around the world. And of course, you probably need at least, you know, some good infrastructure in these sorts of places. But over time, you know, I'm guessing the ability to innovate and change is pretty important. Yes, I think that ability to evolve is incredibly important. I mean, we're living in a dynamic, fast-moving, technologically driven world. And evolution, change is part of the alchemy of what makes a place a success. And skills and innovation are certainly part of the mix in the view of my guest today. I spoke to Andres at home in Madrid on a lovely summer's day. I'm really interested to hear what he has to say. Andres Rodriguez Posa is the Princess of Asturias Chair and a Professor of Economic Geography at the London School of Economics. Between 2015 and 2017, he was President of the Regional Science Association International. He won the ERSA Prize in Regional Science in 2018. That's the European Regional Science Association. In his career, he's specialised in the topics of regional growth and inequality, discontent and populism, innovation, migration and development policies and strategies. Regional growth is the topic of a major new report by MGI coming up this year, so I'm particularly delighted to talk to him today. So welcome, Andres. We always like to know a bit more about people before we talk to them about their academic or other expertise. So I'd like to start by asking you, where did you grow up? Where were you educated? And how did you end up being an economist? Well, thank you. First uh, first of all, thank you very much, Janice, for having me here. And I am, as my name can tell, I am Spanish. I was born and raised in Madrid. I went to university in Madrid. And then I did my PhD in uh, Florence, uh, the European University Institute. And you said, how did I become an economist? I would like to clarify that I am not an economist. Uh, I am a geographer, and uh, I am an economic geographer, but a proud geographer. And I got training in virtually everything under the sun but economics, Uh, some training in law, some training in political science, sociology, of course, geography. But I like to interact and I like to work a lot with economists and I very much enjoy their insights and what I think is a very complementary approach to what I do. So you say you're a geographer, but we think of you as a regional economist or or a specialist in regional economics. So how does that square? Well, I'm perfectly happy and comfortable with any sort of label. I am a social scientist, and we social scientists are concerned with the prosperity and the prospects and opportunities of people wherever they live. And since I am a geographer, I would like to emphasize that wherever they live, because where we are born, where we are raised, where we live, to a great extent, determines our opportunities and prospects in life. 
So in their primer on regional economics, Edgar M. Hoover and Frank Giratani note that this discipline had a rather late start. And they say because of a, quote, regrettable tendency of formal professional disciplines to lose contact with one another and to neglect some important problem areas that require a mixture of approaches. So they say that the traditional economists have tended to ignore the where question altogether. And I'm just wondering, as a geographer, has that changed? And is regional economics the where, the place, given sufficient attention? Well, I think one of the main problems with academic disciplines these days is that we are very much working in silos. And that's very regretful, mainly because we can learn from one another, not just from different perspectives that we use, different approaches, different theories, but also different methods. For a geographer, it is fundamental. We are right at the interface between what people are doing and how they're doing, what economic activities they're doing, and where they are doing them. And in this respect, we are learning and learning significantly from what is being done in mainstream economics, but also what is being done by mainstream uh, geographers in human geography, but also specifically in our field in economic geography, which has the emphasis on place and the role of place for the prospects of individuals. It's interesting because I worked on a, an MGI report on the bio-revolution and it was very clear that biology was being unleashed by computing and the data revolution. And I guess that the knowledge of place and how that interacts with economics, etc., is also being enabled by the data revolution. How much is the data explosion helping your discipline? Well, I have to remember that when I started doing my thesis, I had to input all my regional data by hand. And most of the data traditionally was collected at national level, which from my perception is far too large to always influence the lives of individuals. And when I first got my first tape with data, which was the equivalent, it would be 12 megabytes today, the tape was half a meter in diameter. So just processing that took about 30 days for a technician at the institution I was to do that. So it's changing radically. We are behind other fields. Why? Because the interest in territories has been lower than the interest in uh, individuals, but there has been significant catching up. To the extent that 20 years ago, we had to work with whatever limited data we have. Now the problem is not working with limited data, it's actually making sure that we're working with the right data amongst the wealth of uh, information that's available for us. So I'd like to ask you, what kind of factors make a particular place or individuals in a particular place successful or unsuccessful? And I was very struck some years ago when I was a journalist for the Financial Times about the case of Fairfield, Iowa. Now, I found out that this small place in rural Iowa in the Midwest had much faster per capita GDP growth than almost anywhere else in America. And I looked into it and I found that this was the centre, I mean, dominated by a university dedicated to transcendental meditation and the entire 
population almost of Fairfield Iowa were practicing TM. And I went there and we talked about how TM really makes you function very well as an individual. Your brain is clear. So that was just one one thing that I came across in my past. But there must be more mainstream factors. And I'd love you to talk a bit about that. There's not a single factor that makes a place dynamic. If it were that easy, we wouldn't be talking here. In fact, we have to consider a lot of factors because first, there are things that make a place or factors that make a place dynamic today and may not make it dynamic in a few years' time. Most of my friends in urban economics would tend to say that it's big cities, a combination of agglomeration and density in big cities that make big cities highly dynamic throughout history. And in fact, cities are always have been traditionally dynamic, but cities have come and gone and they have periods of high growth and periods of low growth. London has been very prosperous and especially over the last quarter of a century, very dynamic. Since the 1930s until the mid-1990s, it was having a worse economic performance than the rest of the UK. And many big cities, I want to mention places like Detroit in recent times, but also in the UK, places like Belfast and Glasgow have suffered massively from economic decline. So what may, may make a city dynamic or a place dynamic in a certain period might not be what makes it dynamic in, in the next period. So places, cities, regions have to keep on reinventing themselves constantly. And how can they do that? Well, by combination of having the right sectors, but being able to migrate and transform those sectors first into more complex, more technologically advanced, but also more dynamic sectors over time, sectors that can adapt to different conditions. And that is very often linked to factors like, for example, having the right people and the right skills so in terms of education, the right human capital, if you want to put it in that way, the right Accessibility, so the right infrastructure, places that are isolated suffer and suffer in under whatever circumstances, and the right capacity to generate and also absorb new ideas, new technology to innovate. And in order to do that, you also have to have the right institutions. Because if you have weak institutions, you have institutions that actually act as predatory institutions, that prevents any sort of potential, any sort of talent, any sort of innovative capacity from emerging and prospering. So, Andres, you talked about governance as being one of the important determinants of whether a region is successful or not successful. Many countries have opted for devolution or decentralised administration as a way to haul up regions that are lagging. But isn't the evidence mixed on the effectiveness of that? Uh, yes, absolutely, uh, Janet, you're, you're right. In fact, when we look at the returns of um, devolution across the world, in especially terms of economic growth and uh, employment generation, it's not that uh, decentralized governments have been far more successful than centralized governments. In fact, in many parts of the world, and especially in parts of the developing world, decentralization has been an outright disaster. Not because decentralization per se is bad. Actually, decentralization, when done adequately, can deliver far greater returns because it allows to match the policies that are being provided by governments to the needs and wants of people that might vary, not just across countries, but also within countries. The main problem with decentralization is that it's normally done at the wrong time and with the wrong methods. 
when you decentralize, it should be done rightly given subnational tiers of government the right resources to pursue their own independent policies. However, most countries decentralize in periods of deep political and often economic crisis, meaning that is done top-down, without strong demand, without strong, very often, capacity by local governments. And on top of that, there's the situation whereby very often central governments of the national government is reluctant to actually transfer resources. So we end up with the worst of all worlds, which is mainly that there's a lot of transfers of powers and authority to subnational tiers of government. There's much less transfers of money. Very often those local governments or regional governments don't have the capacity to raise their own taxation. And as a result, we end up with what is known as unfunded mandates, limited resources for the number of tasks that they have to do, and therefore they end up doing them not particularly well. So uh, very often the problem is not with the decentralization itself, is that the way most countries across the world have decentralized, especially over the last three decades, has been the wrong way to do it, leading to results that are not good. So the other thing you mentioned was the importance of innovation and having the right people and skills. But so innovation, effectiveness of clusters and special economic zones. I know that this is something that you've looked at a lot. Could you give us some insights and examples of that kind of approach? Okay. in order to innovate, you can innovate in very, very different ways. And the key to innovating is mainly to have the right skills. So the people with the right sort of or the right human capital first to generate new ideas and to generate not just new ideas, but also to absorb ideas that are coming elsewhere because innovation can be radical. So new products and processes that are implemented for the first time anywhere in the world or can be new to a particular market. And in order to do that, you need the right educational institutions that promote that human capital, but also that do the research which is at the basis of innovation. You also need the right institutions that facilitate the generation and adoption of that innovation. Where does this normally happen? It normally happens in cities and in big cities where you have this concentration of skills and talent. You have this concentration of dynamic sectors, you have some of the top research institutions, some of the top universities that generate all this agglomeration economies that facilitate the triggering and diffusion of innovation. But in the end, it's not a prerogative of just big cities. It's, it's not that big cities per se do better. It's the big cities that have got all these skills. You can be a very, very large city in a, let's say, an emerging country or in a developing country where you lack the adequate institutions, you lack the right sort of training of human capital, and your research centers, your research organizations are not at the forefront of research. So you're going to be less able to generate that type of innovation and also to absorb innovation. By contrast, this can happen and can happen at a fantastic scale in relatively small regions, relatively small cities and towns. One clear example is the case of Germany, where you have what are known as the hidden champions. The hidden champions are world-leading 
firms in medium to high-tech sectors, but sometimes also in low-tech low tech sectors, that have remained at the forefront in their fields, mainly because they have this combination of innovative capacity, capacity to absorb innovation through the right human capital and the right institutions. And this is a very interesting case of a country that has done particularly well throughout different processes and different crises, mainly because they have had dynamic firms and dynamic sectors scattered throughout most, especially in the case of Germany in the west of the country, regardless of whether this is Munich or Frankfurt or Hamburg, some of the big cities, or places like Ingolstadt or Freiburg or Mannheim, which are far smaller, but as dynamic, if not in some cases more dynamic. Do you see the German sort of distributed model in any other country? Very often we have countries that have a combination of both. Countries like the Nordics, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, what you have is the biggest cities, which are not that big. Copenhagen, if you put it in Chinese terms, would be a small, big city, but it's the largest in the Nordics. These are cities that are at the forefront of innovation, that are very dynamic, and not just dynamic, they are resilient. But also across the rest of the country, where you have, whether you are in Denmark or you're in Jutland or you are in Sweden, you're in southern Sweden, which is now in the region of Skåne, what you have is very dynamic sort of industries, very dynamic sort of sectors that are capable of creating constant innovation, despite the fact that what for many economists would see the most unfavorable conditions, high labor costs, high levels of unionization that have not become a problem for the prosperity of these areas. In fact, they have, or they're part of their attractiveness, parts of, an, of their assets. But then you'll have other countries, I'm thinking, and I may be wrong, you have money poured into the capital cities, whether it's Paris or London, but then you don't get the spillovers, or do you? This is one of the big mysteries. The assumptions within economics is generally that big cities can absorb resources from distant locations, but then they can transform the resources if we want to use this type of language. They can get the resources, the ingredients to make a cake, they make the cake bigger, bigger, and that cake normally spreads out. What we find is that that's normally not the case. In general, big cities attract resources from very distant locations. If we take, a, for example, the case of Europe, we have measured that there's there are backwash effects that uh, actually can be felt a thousand kilometers away from the cities. The spread effects emanating from the cities are about 200 to 250 kilometers. So if we put that in a European context, and you mentioned Paris or you mentioned London, Paris can absorb resources from anywhere in France, in continental France, from Belgium, from the Netherlands, from most parts of Germany, even from Spain. But when it starts spreading out, it gets as far away as Tours or it gets as far away as places like Le Havre, it doesn't get to Lyon, it doesn't get to, to Marseille. If we put it in the British context, the same, if the same were to apply to London and the rest of the UK, 
London can attract resources from not just the UK, can attract from many parts of Europe and the world. But when it spreads out, it just goes to places like Leicester or not much further away than that. And uh, the situation when for research that has been done in the case of the US is even worse because the backwash effects are normally a thousand miles. Uh, now we should switch from kilometers to miles. Uh, the spread effects tend to be around 50 miles. So in that respect, we end up with ever greater concentration within cities that creates a strong polarization, not just in terms of economic dynamism, but in terms of opportunities, and leads, in my opinion, to a significant waste of potential of areas that in the past were highly dynamic, and also to the emergence of social and political tensions that in the long run can undermine the economic growth, not just of these places, but also of the big cities and of countries as a whole. Just to go back to one thing you said, why is the spread effect so tiny that 50 miles in the US, whereas in other places it's 100 miles, 200 miles or kilometres, why is it so small, the spread effect, the spillover effect in the US, do you think? Well, the spread effects tend to be far, it's still one of the biggest mis, uh, mysteries that we have had. And uh, when you take a look at most of the assumptions that we find in um, economic geography, and especially in regional economics, is that there would be significant diffusion. When we do the empirics, we find that this is not the case. Why is that? Well, it remains a mystery. One of the main problems might be that economic factors benefit massively from positive externalities that are associated with agglomeration and density. And when you have, let's say, human resources or physical capital moving to a city, probably you're going to get significant returns by remaining within that city or higher returns than if you move back to other places. So that's why there would be this suction effect by cities that, uh, with some exceptions, and I mentioned the case of Germany before, actually limits or creates this incredible islands of concentration, islands of concentration of wealth that have become far greater and are, have led to a far more polarized world today than what we had 40 or 50 years ago. One of my colleagues put to me a, a, a sort of choice, people or place. So say you had to choose between investing to make it easier for a talented person to move to a big city like London, or you invest in reviving that person's home region. You could invest in education in remote places, and that would benefit those places. But by educating people, you make it more likely that they leave. So maybe the return is higher if the person moves to the big city, but then the return to the home region is higher if the person stays. So how do you counteract that sort of sucking in of resources to the big cities and away from the regions? Well, let me just start, uh, Janet, by saying that that dilemma between people or places is an absolute fallacy, in my view. That people live in places and the prospects and opportunities of people depend very much on where they were born, where they work and where they live and where they choose to live. And I always tend to say that talent is more or less evenly spread. Opportunities are not. And when you have a situation whereby you're saying, well, should we invest in people or should we invest in places? 
that doesn't exist. You always invest in people and those people live in places. Normally when this is put as people versus place-based policy, a people-based policy is normally a policy mainly targeting big cities. You're saying we should invest in talent and we should invest in those places where you have the greatest opportunities. And let's take a look into something like innovation policy, which is mainly investing in R&D. You're saying we're going to do it place blind. We're going to put it where you have the best opportunities, you have the best research centers. This inevitably, because of history, tend to be in the biggest cities. And then you end up doing a policy, which is, in the case of most of our countries, concentrates and reinforces the primacy of our biggest cities. In a country like Spain, for example, 75% of all investment in R&D takes place in Madrid and Barcelona. Does it mean that there's no potential or not talent, not good universities in other places? No, it doesn't. But we end up with a reinforced situation whereby the only solution is for people to move back or to move to the bigger cities. But not everyone can move. Not everyone has got the opportunity. Not everyone has got the chances to move. Not everyone wants to move to the big city. So we need to also invest in those places where you have significant talent. Because otherwise, you end up first, from an economic point of view, foregoing opportunities. We don't know whether the big cities are always going to do well. Rome, if we go in historical times, was the biggest, the most dynamic city in history. And then it declined and it declined after a few centuries. So we need to hedge our bets. And we need to have dynamic big cities. We need to have dynamic medium-sized cities. We need to have dynamic small cities, towns, and rural areas. Because when we have that, we'll be maximizing the talent. But also the problem comes from a social and a political perspective that highly polarize societies from an economic perspective are societies where you have, you can feel the tension. You've written compellingly about the revenge of the places that don't matter. Well, we're seeing it virtually everywhere in the developed world and in many parts of the emerging world. Everything is intertwined. So when you have economic problems, they sooner or later become serious political problems. Let me just put the example of France. In France, over the last quarter of a century, out of the former 22 regions that France had, there's only one, which is the region of Paris, the region known as Ile-de-France, that has grown above the national average. That means that 21 other regions, to a greater or lower extent, have grown below the national average. That is a phenomenal process of polarization in a country that is highly prosperous or remains a highly prosperous. China was a country that was significantly more polarized than, for example, the United States or Europe to, to keep a benchmark. It was around four times more polarized than the US. And polarization had increased rapidly in the second half of the 1980s and throughout the 1990s to a position in which it was almost unsustainable with a very rapidly growing coastal areas and big cities around the coast and a much less dynamic inland. So what did the Chinese government do? In some ways consciously, but also unconsciously, trying to promote development inland. 
with more active policies, so the development of infrastructure in inland China through the Belt and Road Initiative that involves other countries, but also it was a big drive. In other cases, by investing strategically in research facilities inland, improving the quality of education and training. Well, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us, Andres. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chewy. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.